So we'll jump right to the sermon. This morning I'll be reading from Jude, um, which is a small epistle or letter at the uh, end of your Bible right before Revelation. So would you please open there with me? It's on page 1027 in your pew Bibles, or follow along in your own Bible, the letter of Jude. Um, Let me read it for us this morning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, 
In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active. Lord, would you grant us, by your spirit, wisdom to understand and apply this instruction to our lives and to your body, the church, Lord. Open our ears, Lord, that we might hear from you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For any of you that don't know me, um, I'm a teacher at Opelousas High School and a football and track coach as well, uh, mostly at Opelousas Junior High. Um, one of the most challenging parts of, of being a coach is having the wisdom to know exactly how to get the most out of your athlete in any given situation. Um, sometimes the situation calls for reassurance. You'll pat them on the back and say, well, that plays over. You know, we'll learn from it. You'll do better next time. But other times the situation calls for um, for a little bit more. I, I have to be a little bit more demanding. Um, you know, Nick Saban, while hated by many LSU fans for defecting to our rivals, um, is known for being a demanding coach. Um, he's described by Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots. Um, he says this of, of Nick Saban. Nick is extremely intense. In other words, he will never accept mediocrity. It takes a special person to thrive in Nick's system as he demands accountability and respects only people who are willing to take responsibility for their actions at all times. <clears throat> in one of our recent junior high football games, uh, actually our season finale, my team didn't play their best, but uh, we fought hard and came out with the victory. And while I walked to the huddle after the game, I was uh, thinking through the game in my head, thinking about um, how I was going to congratulate them on a good season and uh, a, a good game. Um, my young players thought that that would be a great time to uh, point out some of the errors that their teammates had made. And uh, then those teammates got defensive, and of course it went downhill from there. Um, so because of the circumstances, my original you know, celebratory speech had to kind of go on the wayside, and I had to, we had to lecture them a little bit on how to be a good winner, how, to, um, you know, how everyone had things they could improve, and how we win and lose as a team and uh, we need to stand united to achieve our goals. You know, I think of myself as usually a positive coach, and I want to, um, you know, focus on the positive and encourage my team. But this circumstance required that I address some important negative issues that were causing division among my team. In God's word this morning, we, we saw that in Jude, Jude found himself in a similar situation um, as he's writing this letter to the church. Jude tells us in verse 3 that this is not the letter that he uh, intended to write, not the letter that he wanted to write, um, but circumstances and the events taking place um, dictated that he had to respond um, to, this, to these uh, 
false teachers who were distorting the gospel and deceiving the sheep. So it does warrant us that we look at this today um, through Jude's letter, how faithful Christians should respond to such teaching because we do still live in the last days and apostasy has continued to creep into many segments of the church. So in our examination of, of Jude this morning, we'll look at it in, in three sections. First, we'll look at the letters welcome and opening charge to contend for the faith in verses 1 through 4. Then the majority of Jude's letter concerns some dire warnings against corruption of the gospel and the wrath of God awaiting those unholy false teachers in verses 5 through 19. And then Jude's letter concludes with uh, verses 20 through 25, um, with God honoring worship and some final concluding commands. We'll begin our study of Jude with the first four verses of his letter, um, the welcome in charge. Jude begins by introducing himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Um, Church historians generally agree that there was only one James notorious enough to be called James, and that is James, you know, the son of Mary and Joseph, uh, brother of Jesus, who later led the Jerusalem church. That means Jude here, brother of James, is also a brother of Jesus. But rather than identifying himself as Jesus' brother, he instead calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Um, Jude puts himself in a humble position before um, his brother. Um, And James actually did the same thing in his letter, by the way. Um, This word literally used, servant, is bondservant or slave. Jude wants to communicate that he is completely submitted to his master's will. There's also the humbling fact that Jesus' brothers were not disciples of Jesus during his ministry. Uh, Mark 3, 21 tells us that Jesus' family thought him to be out of his mind. Um, So Jude, cognizant of his earlier rejection of Jesus, now identifies himself as a servant of Jesus. David Guzik explains in his commentary on Jude, um, he says, To Jude, the blood of the cross that saved him was more important than the family blood in his veins that related him to Jesus. Jude could say with Paul, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. In the second half of the first verse of Jude, we learn who Jude is writing to. He says he was writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Uh, Jude may be the most Trinitarian of the gospel writers or the New Testament writers in the sense that he presents several points of his letters in, in groups of three. So first, he's writing to those who are called. As Pastor Dean has preached recently on the, the chain of salvation from Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God calls the elect to himself. So Jude here is writing to Christians. Second, the addressees are beloved in God the Father. Some of those he's writing to may even have uh, witnessed Jesus firsthand in the flesh. They were eyewitnesses to the love of God displayed in sending Jesus to bear the sin of the world and endure the judgment of sin in our place, um, and to impute his righteousness to us. And third, Jude is Jude says these Christians are kept for Jesus Christ. The word kept in the Greek expresses watchful care or close attention. Notice these three verbs in verse 2, called, beloved, and kept, are all passive verbs. They all refer to what God is 
doing for these people, not what they are doing themselves. God has called them. God has loved them. And God has kept them and will continue to keep them in Christ. If Jude is writing to those who are called, beloved, and kept by Jesus Christ, then this would include us as Christians. We have the benefit of this letter as part of the God-breathed canon of Scripture, useful to each of us for, for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. Jude's greeting in verse 2 is slightly different from the grace and peace we typically find in most of Paul's letters. He asks that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to his readers. Again, there is a divinely inspired order to this threefold salutation. He begins with mercy, which refers to God's relenting from giving, giving sinners the punishment they deserve. This mercy is possible from our God of justice because our substitute, Jesus Christ the righteous, paid our penalty. And because of that mercy, we now have peace, peace with God. Um, we who were once enemies are now his people. And we have an, an internal sense of peace from God because we have a father who, who cares for us. Um, I commend, as I've said before, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And I commend it, commend it to you as a great verse to memorize if you don't have it memorized um, and to call to mind when, when troubles arise. It's said that D.L. Moody wrote in his Bible next to that verse, This is ours when we worry about nothing, pray about everything, and thank God for anything. So we have a great sense of peace uh, because God has, has saved us. And, and the third element of Jude's greeting is love. Um, love is the bond that unites us in the Lord and unites Christians to each other as brothers and sisters. It is the first and greatest commandment of Christ that we love God uh, and everything, with everything we have. And the, the second commandment then is to love our neighbor as ourselves. John records that Jesus told his disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is the defining characteristic of God's people. Love for God first, and from that, a love for each other. And lastly, in verse 2, Jude doesn't just ask for mercy, mercy, peace, and love to be present. He asks that they be multiplied, that they be growing more and more, increasing in the hearts of God's people. Now we reach verse 3, in which, God, in which Jude lays out the theme of his letter. First, we learn that Jude would rather be writing a different letter. This was not the one he had planned to write. Um, he would rather be writing about their common salvation. Um, it's common in the sense that it's shared by all true Christians. Um, Jude would rather write a letter more, more focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the me message of salvation um, through Jesus Christ our Lord. But again, circumstances necessitated that this letter be written. Um, Jude had heard rumors of the false te teaching that was creeping into the church, and he knew he had to write in defense of the one true faith. His letter couldn't just be pro-salvation in Jesus Christ, though we'll see that his letter is certainly um, Christ-centered and gospel-focused, but he actually had to write in opposition to these corrupt teachers that were distorting the gospel. 
And what he encourages his readers to do in verse 3 is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Um, This is important because this is the uh, overall overarching message that Jude is going to communicate in this letter that um, we, the readers, and those he wrote to, are to contend, to the fa- contend for the faith. So let's ask some, some questions of the texts here. First, why do we contend for or defend something? Um, we contend for things that are valuable. If you walk into a museum or an art gallery, um, you might find uh, glass over the paintings or a guardrail requiring you to keep your distance, signs saying do not touch, and security guards on duty, Right? Um, That means we know that those things in that museum or that art gallery must be valuable. Um, So we put up defenses around things that are valuable and important to preserve. Second question, who should contend for the faith? It's interesting that the the you, when Jude says he writes appealing to you to contend for the faith, that's a singular singular you, meaning um, individual Christians are instructed to contend for the faith. I don't think that means we can't do it corporately as well, but the contending that Jesus, that uh, Jude here commands us to do is a task for each person. Third question, what do we contend for? Jude calls it the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is not necessarily our own personal faith, but the essential truths of, of the gospel that all Christians hold in common. The faith was once delivered to the saints. And the truth of the gospel contained in the Bible has been received by the saints. Um, it isn't changing. It's, it's one true faith. And this faith is for all. Um, there is one gospel for both Jew and Gentile. Erdsman's Bible commentary says, There is no other gospel, and there will be none. Its content may be more fully understood. Its implications may be developed. And its predictions will be fulfilled. But it will never be supplemented or succeeded or supplanted. In verse 4, we find out why we need to contend for the faith. The reason that the faith needs to be defended is because certain ungodly people, corrupt teachers, have snuck into the church. We see that their desire is to pervert the grace of God and deny Jesus Christ. Our faith's entire foundation rests on this firm foundation of God's grace towards sinners and the necessity and centrality of Christ. In salvation, these false teachers were attempting to remove the very foundation of our faith. We all know that without a firm foundation, the whole building will surely collapse. Notice also that the danger for Christians here is coming from inside the church. We're tempted to look at the world around us and our government's policies, our culture's hostility, and think that uh, the, the increasing persecution towards the faith may diminish its impact or even cause the church to die. But throughout history, uh, we'll see that persecution has only strengthened the true church. So when do we see um, churches and denominations fail? Typically, it's when they abandon the teaching of of the true faith, that they uh, abandon the gospel and the foundational teachings of the faith. Um, C.H. Spurgeon wrote that Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. Jude here tells us that our focus needs to be on what's going on inside our churches and in the doctrines of our denominations. There lies the real danger for Christians when false doctrines are taught. It perverts the grace of our God into license for sin 
and denies Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. Now moving into the longest part of Jude's letter, verses 5 through 19, um, this deals with several warnings against corruption of the gospel. Um, Jude uses several illustrations from the Old Testament and Jewish history to paint us a vivid picture of these false teachers. Now it goes on for a while, and we won't have time to, this morning to delve into the depths of the richness of each of these examples, but by God's grace, we'll try to pull out each the key points of these accusations against these corrupt teachers. The question we want to address is, how can we recognize this apostasy? Um, interestingly, as he contends for the faith in his letter, Jude's focus is not just on the teaching itself, but even more on the character of the teachers. The idea is that you can know a tree by its fruit. So Jude begins his accusation in uh, verse 5 against these false teachers with three examples taken from the Old Testament. In verse 5, we're reminded that God saved all Israel out of the land of Egypt. But because of their failure to trust in his promises, he destroyed those who did not believe. We know from the Exodus account that God did many signs and wonders, the plagues, he parted the Red Sea, he brought them out of slavery, and after seeing all these wonders, hearing the voice of God himself at Mount Sinai, receiving his daily care and provision of manna, the Israelites, most of them, still lapsed into unbelief. They complained to Moses and wanted to go back into slavery in Egypt. Um, Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11, which was our responsive reading this morning, says, For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those who were unfaithful received God's just penalty. And we should learn from this that not all who are in the visible church, those who claim to follow Christ, are true Christians. Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13 warns us that there are weeds and thistles mixed in with the wheat. Those who are not truly in Christ will be sorted out at the day of judgment. And that is why it is our job to check all of all the teaching of the church against God's word and scripture. In verse 6, Jude tells us about the angels who left their proper dwelling. There's some disagreement about what exactly this is referring to, but it, it may refer to the sons of God in, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, which says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So the offspring of these angel-human relationships were called the Nephilim, or the giants. And uh, the very next event recorded in Genesis is Noah and the flood, uh, which brought judgment on mankind and, and uh, these angels as well. So similarly, Jude explains that these rebellious angels are kept in eternal chains in darkness until the judgment. It's a stark reminder that God has judgment in store for those who rebel against him and reject his authority. And the third image Jude brings up is uh, the punishment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, that's in verse 7. These cities were well-known places in which homosexuality and licentiousness were accepted and practiced. And Genesis 19, verses 24 and 25 tell us that then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley 
and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground. So those cities who rejected God's authority and his natural design for marriage received the punishment of eternal fire. These are sober warnings against this false teaching and those who support it. Uh, Perverting the grace of God into sensuality and rejecting Christ results in destruction and eternal punishment. Um, Jude tells us in verse 8 that these false teachers are just like those Israelites that were led out of slavery in Egypt, just like these fallen angels and just like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, he tells us in verse 8 that they rely on dreams. These men were likely, likely claimed to be prophets as they had uh, prophetic dreams or visions, which were really just deceptions. Um, they defile the flesh. These people pursued their own sinful desires rather than the standard of God and his law. They reject authority. They ultimately rejected God's authority um, as they do not follow his commandments. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. The next two verses will help us understand a little bit what this phrase means, but these people spoke in judgment of those in places of authority in the church. So because these people have committed these sins, Jude's argument is that they are destined for judgment themselves and will endure in, uh, eternal punishment in hell. In verse 9, Jude provides a counterexample of the blasphemy of these false teachers. Uh, the account of the archangel Michael disputing with the devil is not recorded in the Bible, um, but probably comes from the testament of Moses. Jude's point seems to be that the archangel Michael didn't even presume to speak judgment against the devil himself, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. Um, This is in contrast to these false teachers in verse 10 who blaspheme all that they do not understand. They're ignorant of the truths of Christianity and speak falsely about them. Uh, Jude likens these people to animals. These people pretended to be spiritual, but they, like animals, followed their own desires rather than God's word. Verse 11 provides another trio of images from the Old Testament regarding the woe that these people are destined for. The way of Cain is symbolic of all who reject the means of God's salvation, faith in Christ. We know from Genesis that Abel brought his sacrifice by faith, uh, but the way of Cain is is unbelief. Uh, Balaam, we remember, is the prophet who was hired to curse Israel by Balak, king of Moab. Balaam knew well that Israel was God's people, but yet was willing to compromise for the sake of money, for the sake of gain. And Korah um, rejected the authority of Moses and and Aaron the prophet, the priest, um, in Numbers chapter 16. These men rejected God's appointed mediator and selfishly desired to be priests themselves. This brought a swift judgment for these rebels as we remember that the earth opened up and swallowed them. Um, Notice the increasing intensity of the apostasy in verse 11. First, they walked in unbelief. Then they abandoned themselves for the sake of fame and fortune. And that finally led to their perishing in judgment due to their rebellion. And as we continue into verses 12 and 13, Jude continues painting this terrifying picture of these certain people. He says in verse 12, they are hidden reefs of the kind that lurk just below the surface of the water and, and sink ships and cause some to make shipwreck of their faith. They feast with, with Christians without fear. These people have no right fear of God. They are shepherds feeding themselves. Ezekiel tells us in uh, Ezekiel 34, verse 2, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? 
He continues and says they are wandering, or sorry, waterless clouds, which, pro- which promise nourishing rain, but provide none. They are swept along by winds, rather than being firmly rooted in Christ and his word. They are fruitless, dead trees. They have the destructive power of the wild waves of the sea. These people are wandering stars. In Jude's day, the stars were an important navigational tool. So if the stars wandered, they could easily lead them astray. And that is exactly the effect that these false teachers have if they're allowed to mislead God's people. Again, the seriousness of this false teaching is emphasized. Because of these people's unfaithfulness, their departure from the basic truths of the faith and their rejection of God's authority, there is eternal darkness promised for them. If they continue in this way, there's no chance of light, but only eternal darkness. Verses 14 and 15 provide another illustration, um, actually a prophecy about the judgment due to these ungodly false teachers. Um, Enoch is in the Bible in Genesis 5. He's the one who walked with God, and God took him up when he was 365 years old. Um, Jude quotes here from the book of Enoch, which is, again, not in Scripture, but uh, he prophecies about the judgment of the Lord, the judgment that the Lord will send against the ungodly. Um, One thing to note in uh, verse 15 is that the word ungodly is used four times. So um, Jude emphasizes the judgment that those without God uh, will endure. Verse 16 provides further description of the character of these ungodly people. Um, Clearly, these people have heart issues. They're discontent and selfish, following their own sinful desires and showing favoritism to gain advantage. These people are both grumblers and boasters. They use their words to deceive and insult the God who gives us all things. In verses 17 and 18, Jude appeals to his contemporary writers, the apostles, and their warnings against false teaching. These apostles warned us in verse 18 that in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. These false teachers scoff at God's standard at his law, and they turn to their own ways. The New Testament has several passages that include similar predictions uh, about the heresy and apostasy that's coming into the church. We find one from the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And finishing up this section, verse 19 tells us more about these people. It says, they cause divisions. They abandon the unity that we have in Christ and cause people to fall away from the faith. It says they are worldly people, not spiritual, but carnal. It says they're devoid of the spirit, And this is the real root of the issue. These people who have crept into the church are not true believers. Galatians chapter 2 verse 4 reveals the intentions of these unbelievers in the midst of the church. Galatians 2 4 says this, Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. The goal of these false teachers is to steal away as many people as they can and bring them down with them. So Jude has painted us a vivid picture of the character of these certain people. 
They're unbelievers, lacking, in God's, lacking faith in God's promises. They reject the authority of Jesus, the Bible, and those God has ordained to lead the church. They pervert God's grace into license to sin, even sexual immorality. They distort the good news of Jesus, promising, proposing alternate false gospels that cannot save. Jude is clear here that these teachers are subject to God's wrath and eternal judgment. And now we turn from this vivid description of these apostate teachers to our response to them. The final six verses of Jude provide some concluding commands and God-honoring worship. It appears that the structure of verses 20 and 21 is a command surrounded by three subpoints or ways of accomplishing that command. So the way it's rendered in the English Standard Version, um, the predicate of the sentence is to keep yourselves in the love of God. So that is what we are commanded to do, keep ourselves in the love of God. That does not mean that we earn God's love by our deeds. Um, God's love for us is a reflection of God's goodness, not our goodness. The perspective is not, I'm so great that even God loves me. It should be, God is so great that he loves even me. Think of the prodigal son in Jesus' parable recorded in Luke 15. Did the son ever stop being loved by his father? I would say no. But the son distanced himself from that love and experienced the result. Um, so when we find ourselves wandering from God's love, we should be like the prodigal and be quick to return to our father and enter quickly into his love. Also notice that Jude again addresses his readers as beloved. They were loved by Jude, certainly, but more importantly, loved by God. So what are some ways we can keep ourselves in the love of God? Jude gives us three strategies here in verses 20 and 21. He says, first, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith, in your most holy faith. This denotes an action that we must take to keep growing spiritually. We are responsible for our own spiritual growth. We can't just wait for it to happen or expect others to do it for us. We are called to take part in this process of sanctification. We remember in Nehemiah that as the returned exiles worked to rebuild the walls, Nehemiah 4.17 says, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. So we work to build ourselves up, contending for the faith and defending ourselves against the wolves that may be among us. <clears throat> the second way we keep ourselves in the love of God is also in verse 20, by praying in the Holy Spirit. These false teachers were devoid of the Spirit, so we as true Christians, we need to take advantage of the Spirit in our prayers. Um, we've all prayed in our own power, um, by our own intellects, using our own wishes and desires, but there's a deeper level of prayer in which the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, as Romans 8.26 says. John Calvin wrote, No one can pray as he ought without having the Spirit as his guide. The third way we keep ourselves in God's love is waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Again, in contrast to the false teachers who will receive eternal fire and judgment, we wait for mercy from Christ that will provide eternal life. 